Okay, so um, I've got the joy tonight of uh, preaching on Galatians chapter 5. Um, for those of you who've been around, you'll know that we've been um, preaching through this series. Um, but I, I came with a little bit of a sense of I want to do something a bit different tonight. And I was asking myself this question as I was preparing um, this talk, which is, at the time of Jesus, i.e. in the first century, in Galilee, in Israel, how did they perceive that God was in their midst? Because like in the 21st century, in a charismatic church in the east, southeast of England, it tends to be off the back of a couple of ballady, worshipy songs and a bit of ooh-la-la and shabba, yeah? <laughs> and we're like, oh yeah, God is here. But actually, how was it for them? Well, in their world, the thing that actually gave them the sense of the presence of God amongst them was actually this, the Word, the Word of God. And in fact, the Jews were absolutely crazy at the time of Jesus for the Word of God, Um, mainly because most towns and villages only had one copy, one copy. And you know when stuff is in limited supply, its value goes up, doesn't it? And... um, For that reason, one of the things they did was they all memorised scripture. Like from like being little five-year-olds. There's this amazing little bit of writing in the Talmud, which is sort of a Jewish religious book. And it sort of says, uh, until the age of five, we don't really bother um, inputting anything into the kids. But once they hit five, we stuff them with Torah like an ox. And I just love that picture. It's like they hit five and it's like, right, you are now ready. And um, so they learnt by repetition and they learnt by memory, but there was only one time in the week when they gathered together where they would actually hear God's word read from the text. And so um, when that thing happened, it was a really, really special moment in their life. And they literally thought God was in their midst the moment two or three of them were gathered around his word. Isn't that a great picture? And um, so I discovered something else as well about this, which I just thought was absolutely amazing. They had a rolling reading plan, okay? So over a number of years, the whole of the Tanakh, the whole Old Testament would be read, and it was rotated, And people would know at least two years in advance who was going to be reading what portion of Scripture and when. And here's the amazing thing, that, that kind of um, cyclical pattern of reading the scriptures had been set in stone for almost 250 years at the time of Jesus. So when he get up, got up and sort of said, you know, the spirit, you know, he opened the scriptures and he read the spirit of the Lord is upon me, that passage was decided 250 years before he stood up. <laughs> Isn't that good? Uh, I say that because I want you to just marvel at this for a moment. I don't know how big you think the sovereignty of God is, but however sovereign you think he is, you just need to make it a bit bigger. Is that cool? And so, so this thing would happen that, um, that, that kind of, they'd be there on the day and they had this thing called the ark and it was like a kind of cylindrical box that they would keep these scrolls in. And um, whoever was going to uh, 
uh, be reading them at that day would be ready. And the guy who was looking after the synagogue, I think we call him in our Bibles the synagogue ruler, so we think of people like Jairus. He's more like a caretaker, really. He would get the scriptures out. And this amazing party would break out. It was a bit like a 1990s illegal rave. If you ever saw any of that footage on TV of all these youngsters who are just like, yeah, giving it large, that is... Ex- and now, these people were religiously conservative. Do you get that? And yet, when God's word came out, they were dancing and jumping and clapping and singing, and anybody who was near the scroll as it was carried through the synagogue would kiss it because it was so precious to them. Isn't that awesome? So I thought... (laughs) I thought it would be fun to do something like that. (laughs) Because here's the thing. They didn't read the scripture from up here. They read it from down here in the midst of everyone to be a living picture that that God was in the midst. Okay, so here's what's going to happen is I'm, I'm going to come down with God's word and when I step off the platform, could I have that mic, Sasha? When I step off the platform, it would be great if we could all stand up because everyone stood up for the reading of God's word and they sat down for the teacher's word. It's kind of cool. Come on, stand up. That's all right. Okay. So um, when I step down, we're in a really big cheer for the Word of God. And I'm going to come and stand in the middle. So it would be good if we could all kind of gather in and face the Word. And I'm going to read. And when I finish, I'm going to say something like, this is the Word of God. And we could all say, he is in our midst. How does that sound? Is that cool? So you ready? Now remember, illegal 1990s rave. <laughs> this is not the first 11 of Canterbury University stepping out to defend the wicket. We don't want any of that stuff. You know, this is like, this is God is in our midst. So here we go. Are you ready? Here I come. I'm impressed. I am properly impressed with that. Okay, so are you ready? Here we go. Okay, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither the circumcision nor the uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, But through love, serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealous, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. This is God's word. He is in our midst. Amen. So, you know, there's no doubt, um, and you might want Galatians 5 open if, if you don't mind. Uh, we're going to be looking at a few of these verses. There's no doubt in my mind that Galatians 5.1 is like the clarion call of the Christian faith. You've not just been set free but you've been set free to live free. I don't know if you understand how huge that is, but um, when I was preparing a similar talk to this a few years ago, we were having a Saturday special here for the evening school, and we were focusing on freedom. We call it our Freedom Day. And, And kind of in my mind's eye, God gave me this picture of a prison cell. You can imagine the kind of thing if you're old enough to remember porridge, you know, with Ronnie Barker. And it's a really dank, grey, miserable, small room with a cast iron bed and a very thin mattress. And one of those horrible, scratchy, grey blankets on the bed. And there's this prisoner sat there with his head in his hands, just kind of biding his time and not knowing if this will ever end. And then suddenly the door to that cell boom, is kicked in. The door isn't just kicked open, the whole frame collapses inwards with a huge whoosh of dust. And there in the doorway stands Jesus, the rescuer. And he looks at the prisoner who sat hopelessly on the bed and says, you are now free. And then Jesus turns around and walks out. And there was this moment when I had this kind of thing going on in my head. It's like, what is the prisoner going to do? What is the prisoner going to do? Well, it's a well-known statistic in our world that many of those who have served time at Her Majesty's pleasure in one of her prison facilities, um, a lot of those people cannot cope when they are released from jail, they cannot cope with the freedom they suddenly have, having had no freedom for so long. 
And it's a well-known fact that many prisoners re-offend simply so they can get back inside, which is just incredible if you think about it. And it's because inside, they do not, to ha- they do not have to set any direction for their own life. Somebody else is deciding the program from the moment they get up to the moment they go to bed. They don't have to take responsibility for any of their actions. Food will happen, a shower time will happen, an exercise time will happen. If they're lucky, they might get to do a bit of education or something like that. And they don't have to make any decisions that are really heading them towards a goal. And they can't cope with the freedom and the options and the choices of the outside world. And because of that, many of them can't wait to get back in to the cell. And so in my vision, I kind of saw this door kicked in and the prisoner got up. And I thought, oh, this is good. And they kind of was. There's a line here. This is good. They walked up to that kind of threshold where the door had been. I think, what are they going to do? Because Jesus has just basically said, the door's open, you're free to go. And they got to that line and went like this. And then turned around and sat back down on their bunk. I think it was the US president called Thomas Jefferson who said, the hardest people to govern are a free people. And I would add to that probably that one of the hardest things to do is to actually govern yourself in such a way that you appropriate for yourself the freedom that Jesus has won for you and then live free in your freedom. You were set free to live free. Jesus did not kick the door of your cell in so you can just stay stay there sitting on the bed looking out of the door at the outside world. He kicked the door in so you could leave that room and never, ever go back. And the funny thing is, we were set free to live free and I don't believe that was meant to just be an, an option in our Christian life. And I'll explain what I mean. Verse 13 Paul says this to the Galatians, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Now, I just want to make the point that this is not some kind of predestination verse, okay? I I do believe we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God. But this isn't what this verse is talking about. The actual language here is basically saying that Jesus stood and called your name. He called your name. Ian, he called your name. Sasha, he called your name. You were called to freedom. Jesus stood on the other side of that door and he called you out by name, willing you to walk into the freedom that he's actually purchased for you. His setting you free was a completely sovereign act of a king. But you living free is a volitional choice of a son or daughter. Do you understand how huge that is? He has done everything he needs to do at his end of the equation so you are truly free. 
But after that point, it's up to you what you're going to do with that. He's calling you. He's saying, come, come, come and be free. Come and live in freedom. I kind of think that kind of Paul almost in this, in this part of the letter is taking on the role of a cheerleader. If you can imagine him with pom-poms and doing a funny little dance. But he's saying here in verse 1, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You, you've been saved to freedom by Jesus so you can live in freedom. And whatever you do, don't go in reverse and step back into slavery. So my question is, what are you going to do with the freedom that God's given you? You'll know this guy. He has one famous line, and it goes like this. Freedom! What are you going to do with the freedom that Jesus paid for? What are you going to do with that? Well, I've called tonight's talk Two Tribes. Because I think there's kind of two kinds of people who get enslaved by a yoke of slavery having been set free by Jesus. And the first group of people are enslaved to a yoke of the law. The Old Testament law as we think about it. I love where Paul says here in verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And that brings us back to the background of this letter. And if you've not been around, I just want to briefly take a moment to unpick it for you. Paul had planted this church. They had got saved on the basis of the grace of God alone. Jesus lived the perfect life for them. Jesus paid the price for them on the cross. And they willingly accepted new life on those terms. And then shortly afterwards, as soon as Paul's back is turned, somebody snuck into the church and is probably from a Jewish background and is saying, well, actually, if you really want to be part of God's family, yeah, Jesus, great, we like him. But you also have to be circumcised because that's a symbol of the covenant. It was also part of the law. And so suddenly they're thinking, oh, maybe we should get circumcised then. And Paul's like, no, 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 you don't get it. And, and uh, when I did the intro to this series, I just came up with this simple kind of mathematic equation. It's simply this. Jesus plus nothing is everything. That's how good Jesus is. That's all you need. It's Jesus. All he did, he did for you. Everything he did was absolutely sufficient for you to come to new birth, for you to come to new life, for you to be able to join and enter the family of heaven. The problem is if you have Jesus and you add anything to that, that equals nothing. Because what you do is you diminish who Jesus is And you remove from him how amazing he is and the work he's actually done. Because he's not quite enough. And so Paul says here, look, if you accept circumcision, Jesus is of no value to you. And so the challenge is, Paul is writing to these people and he's saying, look, you've got a choice. 
And what choice you make depends whether you stay free or whether you step back into that cell. And the question is, are you going to have a relationship with the rules? Or are you going to have a relationship with the God who those rules paints his heart and his character? Have you ever read like some of those Old Testament rules? They seem a bit weird in our world, don't they? Particularly the one about don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Um, I've quite often wondered if Jamie Oliver um, brought out a Christmas cookbook or something and there was a strange recipe in there for boiling a goat in its mother's milk, would it be okay to do that now? And I'm sure there would be blogging sites and Facebook pages and Christians would tear each other to shreds on whether they should do that. But the heart of that, and you know that's where the kosher laws come from, don't mix milk and meat. That's why you can't get a cheeseburger in Israel. It's a shocking shame, but there we go. Um, But the reality is this. The reason that law was in the law, well, we've just discovered recently, a small Canaanite place of worship had some clay tablets describing some of their rituals. And one of their fertility rituals was to take a goat and boil it in its mother's milk. See, there's the precept, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk, but behind that precept is a principle, which is don't mess with the occult. And behind the principle is the person of God. You don't have to mess with the occult because there is one God, and he is really good, and if you will entrust yourself to his will and his ways, there will be this slipstream of blessing that will just flow from him into your life. Now, how cool is that? And so the question is, are we going to have a relationship with the rules or are we going to have a relationship with the one who the rules just point to? Paul says, if you choose keeping the law as your way to righteousness, verse 3, you are obligated to keep the whole law. He says, if you just do, because there would have been somebody who said, yeah, it's just a little snip. It'll be over in a second. It's not a big deal. Mm. And he says, if you do that one little thing, you are obligated to keep all 613 rules of the law. And that's how a yoke of slavery to the law works. Doesn't matter how many you've kept, there's a whole shed load more you haven't. And I guarantee the ones you haven't kept are the ones I have kept, which means I can bite and nibble and be snarky and, oh, look at you, you're rubbish. Oh. And Paul later in this very chapter talks about them devouring themselves. That's what happens when we live by legalism. I play my highlights reel against your bloopers reel. And guess who looks best in that? Me. Of course, I'd die if anyone saw my bloopers reel. But that's not going to happen because I'm going to live such a hip- hypocritical life that you'll never get to see the real me. I will come to church on Sunday with a bless you, brother, smile. And although I might have been screaming at my wife and kids in the car as we pull into the car park, by the time we walk in here, my halo is fully polished and at the right angle. And that's what legalism does. 
It enslaves people. And religion, legalism, it's, it's just the spawn of the devil. It really is. And it will take you into slavery. Now, you choose to keep one law as your way of being righteous. You're obligated to keep the whole lot. And that's a really big challenge for some of us who maybe have besetting sins. You know what I mean by besetting sins? That, that one thing you always keep doing, whether it's, oh, I always just over-egg the pudding when I'm telling a story. You know, I, I lie a bit. Or, you know, I'm not very good with the internet and the mouse and the sites I visit. Or whatever it is. What happens is, when you have a bad day, you absolutely kill yourself over it. And when you have a good day, you say, I really was righteous today because I didn't do that thing I normally trip up over. And that's really dangerous. Because you're not righteous because of anything you did or didn't do. You're righteous because Jesus did it. And you can't beat a record like that. So stop looking at your bad moments versus your good moments and adjusting whether you had a good day or a bad day. Every day is a good day in the kingdom because Jesus did it all for you. Is that good news or what? So a few years ago, there was a spate of well-known international church leaders who fell spectacularly. And um, when they did, it was very public. And the interweb started buzzing and fizzing with all sorts of blogs and vlogs of people saying, and the thing I heard the most was, such and such leader has fallen from grace. And that really irritated me. Because from... 25 years of reading this book, the thing I think I've figured out is you never fall from grace, you fall into grace. That's the whole point. When you get it wrong, you land in the hand of Jesus, who is totally sufficient to do the job, which is keep you fit for heaven and make you fit for heaven. So I put a little meme up saying, isn't it amazing that we don't fall from grace, but we fall into grace? And then a friend of mine who's bit of a word head like me, pointed out verse um, 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. I was like, ooh, that's a bit of a problem, because I've just put something on the internet and I'm wrong. And I hate doing that, I like being right if I put stuff on the internet. Um, which is why I don't get involved in arguments on the internet, because it can escalate quite quickly. So, so I looked into this, and really, what the Greek says is that when, it's your, when it says you're severed, it actually means to cause something to be inefficient, or deprive it of force, or influence, or power. So actually, what it's actually saying is your life is deprived of the power of Jesus, which then becomes inefficient if you choose law, over grace you want to go with grace every time if you want to go I'm doing well because dot 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 and you write your little tick list you actually deprive him 
of allowing his goodness and grace and mercy to flow in. And the point is, your life is deprived of that power of Christ, which becomes inefficient if you choose law over grace. And then you fall from grace because literally you have rejected the grace giver. I think Paul, what he's talking about is people who don't know Jesus. Who've never made a relational connection to him. It's the kind of people who say, I'm going to live by law. And there are plenty of people in churches who do that. Today was a good day because I read my Bible, had 20 minutes prayer time, didn't swear at anyone or kick the cat. It's really interesting what he talks about in verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. Do you know that persecution follows grace? Like it follows it around. And here's why. Because grace says you can't and didn't make yourself acceptable to God on your own terms and by your own means. Grace is tremendously humbling. It says you can't do it. And you didn't do it. And you needed him to do it. And that robs us of the opportunity to say, Hi there, St. Mark here. Look how big my Bible is. And you get the picture. See, grace stops us doing that. Ephesians talks about this. It's God's work, so no one may boast. The only person who's meant to be boasted about in the whole picture of salvation is God. It's Jesus. And so grace is tremendously humbling, but legalism is that breeding ground for pride. Aha, look how good I did. And oh, look how terrible you're doing today, brother. Let me just speak into your life from a position of superiority. <laughs> so that's one of the tribes. That's, that's one of those yokes of slavery that you can wear. The other one, I think, is um, equally as bad. It's the flesh. Sorry, I could only find two stakes online. I thought, well, that'll do. It works in my world. Um, <laughs> look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. If you go down to verse 16 and 17, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. There, there is... There is something about, you know, it kind of almost feels like there's law on one end and license on the other. And I want to say to you, Christianity is not like the middle ground, where we're sort of a bit legalistic and we kind of get away with a bit of naughtiness. I think Dave did a wonderful um, slide the other week about this. You know, there's legalism and there's license and then there's Jesus up here and he's completely disconnected from this process at all. He doesn't play this game. His grace... His holiness. He's the law keeper. He's the one who totally fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. He's the one who did it. And so um, we need to recognize that this, this thing called license or giving in to the flesh, that actually wars against everything the Holy Spirit wants. 
I love this. If you're free, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to do the hell, whatever you want. And I use hell advisedly. Opportunities for the flesh. Now you might think, what on earth is the flesh? Well, the flesh is simply a term in the Bible that means the bodily appetites and animal instincts of the natural person who does not have the Holy Spirit. And there's a whole bunch of things that kind of fall out of that way of living. They're listed a bit, a bit further down the passage. We see them in verse 19. Things like sexual immorality. The Greek word there is pornea. It's where we get our word pornography from. It's not only talking about those kind of things. It's a catch-all term that means any kind of deviancy sexually outside of God's norm, which he's prescribed in Scripture. Talks about things like impurity, like the thing that happens to you once you commit that crime. You know, Paul says he who commits that kind of sin commits a sin against his own body. Um, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage or anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and and things like this. Which means there's probably more stuff he could have listed. He says, don't use this freedom, i.e. you're not getting clobbered by the law, as an excuse to just do what you want. There's a special word for that. We call it antinomianism. That doesn't mean you don't like gnomes. I just (laughs) thought I'd say there because I could see Sasha's head was going there. Um, Nomos is the word for law. So antinomianism means anti-law. Like just totally do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. If you have the freedom of grace covering your sin, don't fall into the trap of using that as an excuse to sin all the more. I think Paul later in his life, when he's writing Romans, says, you know, if grace abounds where sin abounds, should we sin some more then? No, certainly not. That's an abuse of grace. So why shouldn't we just allow ourselves to run riot? I love this verse 24, it's just awesome. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You know, this is Paul writing to Galatia, a Roman province, at this time in the first century, under the studded sandal of the Roman Empire. And the Romans crucified probably millions of people over a few hundred years, millions. It was rare to go to any big metropolis and not find people hanging on crosses outside the city gates. So when he says crucified, yeah, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, he's telling us something. When you stepped into relationship with Jesus, that person who was governed totally by bodily appetites, not under the governance of the Holy Spirit at all, that person was put to Like, they're gone. They were crucified, they brought down on the cross, and buried in a hole. Done. In fact, when you got baptised, if you have been baptised, that's the picture. You go down into the grave. That person is done and dusted. If you haven't been baptised, can I invite you to think about it? It's always a good idea to do what Jesus says. And then, you come out of the water, and that's a new life that you're living. That's the picture. 
So Paul is basically telling us, if you're crazy enough to give in and use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge the flesh, the, the flesh that's just insanity. I mean, that's as crazy as exhuming a corpse, giving them a set of car keys and sitting them in the, the driver's seat of your car. That was a joke. Um, I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it would make a mess and it'd be a bit smelly to start with, but you wouldn't give a dead person control of a vehicle that can do incredible and really dangerous things. That's just insanity. And that's the point that Paul is making. We wouldn't do that. And he actually goes on in verse 21 to say, those who do such things, these works of the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, at this point, you might be a little bit confused because on one hand, you might be thinking, okay, so don't use the law to attain righteousness, but if I don't keep the law, I don't get to inherit the kingdom of God. What am I meant to do with that? That's a really good question. I almost ended the sermon here, but I thought I would answer it for you. Um, There's uh, a great Puritan author Um, who was writing around the time that the Pilgrim's Progress was written. His name was Samuel Bolton, and he wrote a book called The True True Bounds of Christian Freedom. And um, in that book, he was tackling this very issue. People who were saying, I'm under grace, I can do whatever I want. And he made this really amazing statement, and he said, you know, so what relationship should we have to the law? And he says this, judicially, we are free from the law. You do not have to keep one single uh, command to actually get eternal life in Jesus. Because actually Jesus did it all. So you are judicially free from the law. But he says, morally, we are obligated to the law. Now, before you think I'm saying that pastors should run around with a checklist saying, have you done this? Have you done that? You haven't done this, have you? And you haven't done that. That's not quite what he's saying. What he's actually saying is, if we are born again, if we are a new creation that has never existed before, and that's what Paul says, we are being conformed to his likeness. That means it will be our joy to walk and live in the law. Now, remember precept, principle, person? The law was not meant to be onerous. It was meant to indicate who God is, how amazing he is, what his character is. Um, The year Anne and I got married, Anne got struck down with ME, and it almost ruined our marriage before we'd got going. And about 18 months in, she was supernaturally healed, like ka-ching, like that at a, at a healing meeting. It was awesome. And we got our life back. And, you know, for the best part of 18 months, um, she was getting up about 11 o'clock in the morning and going to bed about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And climbing up the stairs was that. That was it. That She was done. And so as soon as she was healed, she was like, can we go to the lakes on a walking holiday? Well, you can tell from me that walking is not one of my um, um, hobbies. Um, but the thing is, 
I said, okay, let's do it. And I don't know if you've ever been on a yomp or a hike, yeah? And what happens is you start out at the start of the day and you're feeling like, okay, this is good, we can do this. Got a comfortable pair of shoes, you've got a little rucksack on the back with a, a cagoule in, nice flask of tea, some sandwiches, crisps, chocolate bars, things like that. And it won't be too far into the day before you think, oh, this rucksack's a bit heavy on the back. Straps are rubbing a bit. And then it starts to rain, you think, oh. So what you do is you find some shelter, and you sit down, what do you do? You crack that flask of tea, you finish the tea, you think, I'm actually quite hungry. I know it's only 11 o'clock, but I'll have my sandwiches. And then you think, actually, that's savoury. I need to finish for something. So you have the chocolate bars and so on. Okay. And what happens is you get up and you start walking again. And it's amazing how good you feel. And there's a reason for that. The ironic thing is you weigh, or rather you are carrying, exactly the same weight that you were before. But before it was external weight. And now it's internal. And what's happening is, not only have you internalized all of that, it is now blessing and nourishing your body as you walk. And that is the heart of what Samuel's talking about when he says, you're morally obligated to the law. What he's saying is, the moment you step over that line and Jesus steps into your life, something happens in here. No longer is it a load of external stuff that's just a weight and you can't fulfill it and it's just overbearing. I remember Paul in Romans 7, he's, you know, I don't do the things I should do and the things I shouldn't do, I do. And it's like, Argh. and lots of people think that is somebody describing what the Christian life is like. But he's not. He's describing somebody who knows the law but does not have the spirit. That's why he cries out, thanks be to Christ. Because Jesus is the one who changes that equation. So how does that work? Well, Ezekiel 36, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God says no longer will the law be like, donk, 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 hello. Instead, your heart will be tender and hungry for the things of God. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This is a new covenant that's been written about, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Isn't that cool? And so it's no longer a relationship with the rules. Rather, we are now protecting a relationship with the one that the rules point to. And so I want to bring it into land with this. Paul kind of ends up talking about works and fruit. Now he says it's really obvious if someone's living out of the flesh. Those things are obvious, but those things are worked for. It's, it's a work, it comes out. But actually he's more interested in the thing called fruit.
That's why he says, people who live like this can't inherit the kingdom of God. Because Jesus made a really simple observation. If you walk around in Israel and you see an olive tree, how do you know it's an olive tree? Because olives grow on it. And if you walk around and you stumble across a grapevine, how do you know it's a grapevine? Because it produces grapes. Jesus says, by their fruits, you will know them. And if someone has genuinely stepped into a relationship with Jesus, and he's come into their life, and he has softened their heart, he has bought them new life, that is going to show up. It's going to show up in their passions and desires and inclinations and proclivities. Because they're no longer in a relationship with rules, but they're in relationship with him. I want to take you back to the Old Testament very briefly as we come into land. There's this, have any of you seen the Prince of Egypt cartoon? Yeah. Okay, so there's this great moment at the end of Prince of Egypt where Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with two tablets and the credits roll and you go, yeah, Moses, brilliant, what a great end to the film. And the problem is, if you run that film for a few minutes more, suddenly the tablets are broken Moses has completely lost his rag and 3,000 people are dead. And you think, how is this possible? Like, these people have just observed seven, eight, nine, ten miraculous events in Egypt and then one miraculous event at the um, Red Sea. How could they lose the plot so quickly? And you know, what's, you know why he's angry? Because they've made a golden calf, haven't they? What's interesting is what the people themselves speak over the calf. They say, Hero Israel are your gods, plural, who brought you out of Egypt. And something really interesting is going on there because in Goshan, where they had lived, the major number of deities were bovine. They were cow-like in form. Bacchus, the bull, the cows of Hathor, Apis, even Isis is pictured with two cow horns and the sun nestled between them. So actually that idol summed up everything from their previous life. But why did they make the idol is the question. And the way the Egyptians thought, because you have to remember, although they're genetically Hebrew, culturally they're Egyptian. They've lived there for 400 years. And there's this funny little bit of the story where effectively what's happened is Egyptians think like this. The gods are unseen, so what is important to them is the manifestation of the gods, which is why they have so many statues and carvings and paintings. It helps them connect to that which is unseen. Well, if you think about the story up until this point, Moses has been the manifestation of the unseen Yahweh. He wanders out of the desert. Hey, guys, you won't believe the conversation I've just had with a bush. And the bush told me to take this stick. And boy, look what this stick does. Kapow, kapow, kapow. Ten times, one after another, Moses is the manifestation of God. And it's interesting, God even says to Moses, you will be like a God to Pharaoh. I think maybe God understood Egyptian culture. And then we get the the Red Sea, number 11, kapow. And then Moses says, okay, I'm just off on a six-week sabbatical. Chill out, I'll be back. Now, up until this point, he has been the manifestation 
of the unseen God. So what goes through their head? God has left us. And do you know what they do in that moment? They turn back to everything that's familiar from their life of slavery. Now the reason I tell you that Old Testament story is for some application tonight. I do not believe you reading the law to yourself will stop you from getting stuff wrong. But I do believe being connected to the manifest presence of God will stop you looking back to everything that characterised your life of slavery, which was slavery to sin. And that's the heart of this message from Paul. You know, it's all about the spirit. Genesis, Adam is created, God breathes into him, and he becomes a living being. What is Adam's first conscious experience? It's like God, here, breathing his breath into him. Having intimacy with God and being full of his spirit is not what it is to be a Christian. It is what it is to be human. I'll say that again because that's huge. To have intimacy with God and to be full of his spirit is not what it is to be a Christian. When God made Adam, he was making the template for humanity. It is what it is to be human. And instead, Adam chose the knowledge of what is good and what's not good, what's right and what's not right, what is a good rule to follow and what is not a good rule to follow. And you see it, Ezekiel says, hey, I'm going to give you a new spirit, says the Lord. Jesus rolls up and says to his disciples, receive the spirit. He says to them after he is raised from the dead, oh, don't, don't leave Jerusalem, wait, just wait. Wait, there's something important coming. Wait. What, what's that, Jesus? Wind and fire. And then Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, then walk by the Spirit. Be being filled in another place. Like, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And this leads me to one place, folks. You're called to be free. You are called to be free. Jesus hasn't just set you free. He set you free to live free. And he doesn't want you constrained or contained again by two of the worst enemies we have, which is either getting locked into keeping regulations or being locked into, I can do whatever I jolly well like. But the only answer to that is a thing called the fruit of the Spirit. You can squint and clench your face as tight as you want. So much you might even pop a hemorrhoid if you're unlucky, but you are not going to become holy by doing that. You are not going to become kinder. You are not going to have more love. You are not going to be more peaceful. The only way Paul says it happens is encountering him, the manifest presence of God. Let him fill your life and the... The supernatural fruit of that, which takes no effort, they just start popping out, is the fruit of the Spirit. Is that cool? Can we kind of just take a moment with Holy Spirit? Because I think he would love to 
Just come and fill us afresh. Let's stand. Come and join this session. Just want you to dial your heart into God right now. Just kind of clear the clutter from your mind. Your freedom is rooted in you tangibly experiencing the manifest presence of God himself in the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Like we know you're here already, this is your place. But we actually welcome you. We choose to say we want you in our lives. God, we choose to say we need to encounter you in your manifest, tangible, experiential presence. And we say, come and do your thing inside of us so that we can produce these incredible fruit of the Spirit which you, in your own handwriting, tell us there is no law against. Oh God, what freedom, what freedom that is. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Yeah, just come, Holy Spirit. Just welcome him in your own heart. Just invite him in to come and move. Knock some of those hard edges off. To bring that sanctifying, purifying power of God himself. And I want to ask you, if there's something particularly where you're struggling, ask him to go to town on that. Because there's no law against the things he produces in our lives. Yeah, think he wants to say to us that he's not an inoculating shot in the arm he is your new life it's not just like a jab that you take when you think you're feeling a bit poorly for something he actually is your new life he is the reality of it he is the substance of it 